Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, an update on COVID-19 and waiting four months for your second vaccine. With more vaccines arriving, is that changing your thoughts on leadership? And we celebrate International Women's Day. It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the Scott Thompson Hope Show. How do we mark that occasion? Pull your mask off, breathe some fresh air, and remember what life used to be like. Not! It's the Scott Thompson Hope Show. Here's Scott Thompson! New numbers out for uh, COVID-19. We're seeing a slight increase in Ontario. Uh, they say that is also due to a data catch-up. Uh, sometimes the um, uh, the information is a little bit behind where we are, and then it gets caught up, and it, it shows us a spike. So we're up to 1,631 new cases today, uh, which is a little uh, concerning, considering we were down below 1,000 there for a while. So also, stay-at-home orders lifted in Toronto and Peel. Uh, they moved down into a gray lock down area. Let's bring in Allison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences, Professor of Public Health Services and Sciences, Dali, uh, sorry, Dal Atlanta School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Allison, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So first of all, let's talk about the, the slight spike in Ontario numbers today, up to 1631. They say that that is uh, data catch-up and such. Uh, we've been see- seemingly ho- hovering around the 1,000 mark. Your thoughts of where we are as we talk about new virin- uh, variants and uh, obviously vaccine on the horizon? Yeah, so I think I think we often see that little um, spike in numbers on a Monday where we're, we're getting some catch-up over the weekend done for the testing. So it's usually reflecting more testing results than an actual increase in cases. Um, and, you know, I think we're we're going trending in the right direction, but I think there's still quite a bit of concern about what impact those variants may have going into the next couple of months. And so then the need to just keep our eye on that and, and, acknowledge that those do spread more easily we're certainly hearing of uh of more vaccine coming in uh and certainly uh up to mass vaccination levels certainly by april and such uh also uh more being vaccinated because we're not holding back the second dose we're not reserving the second dose for 21 to 28 days anymore those are just getting out into to arms which is seems to be the consensus across uh canada now um simply because there's a shortage of vaccine um so how will this affect because we heard modeling earlier on a few weeks ago that things could get dicey in around march and april and such yet that was before we went uh we went to uh extending the two dose regimen to four months how do you think that's going to in- affect uh what we're seeing now and in, in, in the next month or so i think a lot of that's going to depend on how quickly we can actually get the vaccines into people so our supply chains looking really strong over the next couple of months, but we we need to make sure that we have the logistics uh, to support getting those vaccines out to people. Um, and you know, I think there's been some delays in terms of um, getting people registered for those and and the online platform. Some confusion about how to do that. So I'm hoping that we'll get some more uh, clarity and better messaging around how we're going to actually do that. 
and you know hopefully that will that will have a, a greater impact but um you know spreading out the second dose to four months we have some observational data from other other countries but you know the further away we get from what was actually studied in the clinical trials the more off label the use is in this and so it is a bit of a risk so uh, with the uh, you know uh, now we're obviously trying to get uh, uh, as many first doses into arms of Canadians as we can how do you think that is going to impact modeling how do you think that's going to impact the trajectory of where this is going even though it's not two doses Right. Well, it should have some effect, obviously, on on um, people's ability to transmit the virus, and it should definitely have an impact on um, the amount of severe illness and death that we see. Uh, although you're not really getting the full uh, protection of the vaccine until you have that second dose, so um, it'll it'll be really interesting to see how well that first dose does does protect people from those things. So is uh, is not holding back that second dose solving the problem? I mean, I guess we're getting more first doses into people, which uh, obviously is a benefit, but are we delaying maximum protection here it's to the point where we can open up? Yeah, and I, I think that's something we just don't know, and so that's why it's a bit of a risk. It may end up being perfectly fine. It could actually be better to space it out longer, but it could also be less effective if we do it that way. And we just don't know the answer to that question. And so some people are worried that this is going to be uh, less effective overall when you get that second dose in. And so this is a gamble and, you know, it's sort of a race against the variants. And so I guess the public health uh, folks have decided that this is more important to uh, sort of head off a spike in numbers from those variants than it is to get the full protection. But could possibly be compromised from delaying that second dose. Uh, are other countries, other advanced countries, using this, uh, 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 using this uh, as an example or as a standard? Um, you know, we I remember uh, President Biden was asked last week if they were going to do this, and he said, "No, not at all, because they have the supply, so they're not yeah. holding back the the set, or, or they're not uh, increasing the space between doses at all." Are there other countries that are doing this? Yeah, so I think Canada is relying basically on what they're seeing is happening in the UK where they have done this and uh, hoping that 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 is actually, you know, those those observations that they're getting from the UK program is actually going to play out the same way here. Um, And, you know, it is really not an issue in the US because they do have the supply um, that they need. For, for vaccines. So we're, you know, but it's not necessarily a bad thing that we're a little bit behind. We're able to, you know, get get the benefit of other countries doing a bit of this experimentation that we're seeing and, and getting that early data from the UK has been a huge part of why they went ahead with that strategy. UK, but also have very high vaccination rates as well. Yes, that's right. So, you know, it's not exactly the same. Um, so again, there's just more uncertainty put into the mix here. Yeah, because the UK is one of the top uh, vaccinators in the world, along with the U- U.S. at this point. So I- I'm not sure how much they're they're spacing out their second dose because they seem to have, uh, you know, although there was the the issues of a week or two for them uh, with with the Pfizer vaccine in Belgium. I, I don't think they experienced the delays nowhere near uh, what Canada has. Um, 
as you move forward with this and, and we start to see more and more vaccines come in, uh, certainly in the United States, which, which is, you know, something we can use to compare to, um, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control down there is now uh, issuing guidelines on what you do as you get out because more and more people down there have been vaccinated. Um, I believe it's like 25% of adults have, have been vaccinated down there. So now they're setting guidelines. If you have been vaccinated, if someone else you know has been vaccinated, then those people can gather and and then um, and, and socialize and not have to mask and such. Uh, are, are, are we can we see that same sort of result with a one shot or will they in the in the, the CDC has said you have to be fully vaccinated. So are we going to see any changes uh, in our behavior or or such as a result of one vaccine or at the end of the day, does do we still have to have the two before we can open up per se? Well, I think that, you know, you may get some protective effect for yourself from that single uh, dose. But what you, you have to remember is that while it may protect you, we still don't really have good data about what impact that first dose has on how transmissible the virus is. So it's still really important to think about whether or not the people that you're interacting with have been vaccinated and whether or not you've had that second shot. So it's really not quite the get-out-of-jail-free card that, it, that yeah. we would hope it would be. So we need to be careful still. So we're still not sure if being vaccinated stops you from spreading it. Is that accurate? That's right. So all of the clinical trials that were done were only looking at whether the vaccine reduces illness and death. And so nobody really knows yet what the data is around whether it stops the transmissibility of the virus. We think it's going to work, but we don't really have that data yet. Uh, today, Toronto and Peel coming out of lockdown and moving into uh, the gray area, uh, the rest of southern Ontario, greater Toronto-Hamilton area in, in the red. Uh, your thoughts on on those hot spots now being moved into gray? Well, you know, it's a... It's, uh, a really tricky balancing act between the health-related costs of keeping everything um, shut down to the extent that they are in the gray zone um, and and whether or not we can risk opening up because the longer we stay locked down, the greater the health costs are for, for people who work in small business and uh, in other sectors of the economy. So, you know, it's it's a really tricky thing at this point. And uh, I think people are, you know, their mental health is suffering from not being able to go to the gym and, and do the kinds of things that they would like to do. So, um, you know, I think for those gray zones, it's still going to be a bit of a, a rough time, especially for people who are suffering financially. Um, and we just need to keep an eye on, on all the other costs related to shutting down like this or remaining in in this more locked down state uh there was chatter a few weeks ago uh with modeling and projections and such about a third wave how are we making out with that are we waiting through it are we seeing a third wave uh and again that a lot of that was tied to the variants of course yes i think we're not really uh you know, we're, we're on course to prevent that if we can, can continue to keep those numbers trending downwards. So I think we're not really out of the woods yet, but certainly the news about the availability of the vaccines becoming much better. Uh, we, we are on track to being able to be, 
to avoid that. Um, but it, a lot of it will just depend on, you know, how how tired people are following those public health directives. And uh, the spike that we're seeing in cases, as we mentioned, uh, and you mentioned, you often see this after the weekend uh, when, you know, certain areas aren't gathering data over the weekend, then boom, it all comes in on a Monday. So you're not concerned where we're seeing numbers right now, uh, you know, again, once over the once again, over the 1000 mark. Yeah, I think, we, you know, we need to look at a couple of weeks uh, to see whether there's a trend emerging. Um, and, and, you know, just a one-day spike is not not something to be too concerned about. What message do you have for Canadians, Ontarians, on where we are now on this March 8th? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I think we're all sick and tired of this. <laughs> it's very tempting, you know, the weather's mm. getting a little bit better to just throw caution to the wind, but, you know, we're so close to being um, in a situation where we can get herd immunity from these vaccines that if we can just hang in there a couple more months and uh, just remain cautious in, in how we interact with one another, I think we'll be in good shape. Allison Thompson has been with us, Associate Professor of Pharma, uh, Pharmaceutical Sciences and Professor of Public Health Sciences, uh, Dalatlana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Allison, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about how uh, over 70% of Canadians were angry about uh, the federal government's rollout on vaccination. Now we're seeing as more vaccinations are promised and start to to, to trickle in, liberals have widened their lead over the conservatives as uh, new COVID vaccine uh, shipments do arrive. This is courtesy of Global News and uh, Ipsos. Let's bring in the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Daryl Bricker, uh, Bricker, and he is with us now. Daryl, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fine, Scott. Hope you are too. Boy, I remember you saying a long time ago that a lot of all of this hinges on where we are in regard to the global pandemic. And boy, I think the research is certainly showing that now. Uh, talk about where we are now. And again, it wasn't that long ago, 71% of Canadians were angry over the rollout of uh, this. But now it appears that uh, the Liberals are widening their lead. Yeah, the government must have listened. That's the way I would yeah. interpret this. So obviously they've stepped up their communications and delivery uh, when it comes to vaccines because Canadians are uh, unidimensional in the way they're looking at the world right now. And what they're really looking at is when they can get out of their homes, when they can get back to their studios, uh, when they can get back to their businesses. And they realize the only way they're going to be able to do that in safety is with a vaccine. So what are we seeing as of uh, these latest numbers, and, and what does that tell you over time? Because the leaders usually, it, it, it's, it's been remarkable that uh, provincial leaders and, you know, with some few exceptions, obviously, and federal leaders have shown well during this pandemic. Yeah, a lot of that was probably related more to hope than it was to actual performance, because people were, as you said uh, previously, angry about the level, the, the lack of progress in terms of uh, what we were doing on vaccines. So uh, right now, it looks like things are improving a little bit. We haven't seen a big jump in leadership approval numbers in either the COVID pandemic or on the um, or on vaccines, but we, we haven't seen as big a decline as we were seeing previously. So it seems to have arrested that. And we've seen a bit of a growth in, uh, in uh, Liberal Party fortunes over the last little while. But the, the bigger thing in all of this is the complete inability of the Conservative Party to get any traction under their new leader. And usually a new leader 
uh, gives uh, everybody, gives a party an opportunity to really relaunch itself and, and energize themselves with Canadians and, and really present another option. And that just hasn't happened here. Why don't you think that has happened? Well, I think it's very, very difficult for the uh, leaders of the opposition parties to get any, any time uh, with the minds of uh, with, with Canadians at the moment. And the reason is because all of the normal mechanisms for being able to get out there and, and expose themselves uh, as you know, pol- new political options for Canadians have been denied them. So, you know, the House of Commons isn't operating the way that it normally does. We're not seeing question period drive the, the news cycle. Uh, basically, what's happening is uh, uh, prime ministers and premiers are getting the opportunity to stand outside of, uh, in, 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 in Ottawa, outside of the, you know, Rideau Cottage and make announcements mm-hmm. on a daily basis or at, uh, you know, press conferences in Ottawa or in uh, Toronto or wherever the premier happens to be, an ability to, uh, to control the news cycle from there. So the opposition parties at both the federal and provincial level are, are, are having a really tough time. Um, as you mentioned, O'Toole, uh, Aaron O'Toole, a new leader, uh, it seemed at the beginning he was sort of getting some steam, but then that kind of tapered off. He never really got it in terms of uh, party approval. So our party support. So party support never really went up. I think the highest we've had the Conservatives is maybe 33. So they're down to 28 right now. So they're, you know, operating in a pretty narrow band. And so are the Liberals. We've had them down into the lower 30s. They're now up a little bit higher, uh, you know, at 34, 35. So um, they're, they're looking a little bit better, but they haven't moved up that much. What's really increased is the gap. So there's been a bit of a decline for the Conservatives and a little bit of an increase for the, the Liberals, so the gap has increased. But, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole has not had an effect on, uh, on, on uh, people's views of how they'll vote in the next election. Uh, NDP pretty much stagnant, but the Greens are up a tad. The Greens are up a little bit, and the Greens benefit from a couple of things. One, they have a new leader, and maybe that's got some appeal. Uh, but the other thing is they tend to be... Uh, the recipient of what I would call the none of the above vote. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're for someone who has maybe a progressive view of the world, but uh, isn't necessarily buying into what the NDP or the Liberals happen to be saying, but can, and also can't bring themselves to vote for the Conservatives. So they're a little bit of a none of the above. Uh, is there a? Con- I remember one time talking to Mike Schreiner, who is the uh, head of the Ontario Green. And I remember saying to him way back when, and this was, I think, during when, when Premier Wynne was still in, in governance, uh, and, and talking about how the, the, uh, the Liberals kept creeping over to the left and kind of ate, ate, eating the NDP's lunch, and, and the perceived perception is that the Green Party is farther left than the NDP. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not the case at all. Uh, we're not a socialistic party. Um, can you see the day when the Greens challenge the NDP for that third-party position? Uh, that could very possibly happen. I mean, we certainly saw that in the province of British Columbia, where the, uh, the, the NDP governed for a couple of years with the Green Party's support. So there is a potential that at a national level we could see that. But the problem that they've got is most of the space that people would see the Green Party as occupying, both the Liberals and the NDP have really... Uh, you know, yeah. moved in the, in that direction on the, particularly on the environment file. And he's right. I mean, if, if you look for any type of consistency, um, uh, in, uh, in Green Party support, it's difficult to find. Even among Green Party supporters, only half of them have the environment as their top issue. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a catch all, as I said before, none of the above type of a, of a, of a party, uh, in terms of their, in terms of their vote support, uh, with a green tinge. 
So, uh, in other words, the Green Party has to identify themselves as more than green. And, uh, you know, lots have green policy now. What else can you do? Is that the stage they're at at this point? Would that be accurate? Well, exactly. I mean, if uh, the Green Party is all about the environment and all about, you know, uh, and and all about climate change, uh, the last election was their election to have. And they didn't Hmm. do any better than they've done in previous elections. Uh, lack of climate change, a climate change or clear climate change message holding uh, the Conservatives back? Uh, yeah, if, if you take a look at the last election campaign, there was only one party that really was not seen as credible on climate. Now, they won the most popular vote, but in place, most of the popular vote, but in the places where they really need to win, like in the province of Ontario, they just didn't seem to be able to appeal. And part of that lack of appeal was not having something that people could see as a credible position on climate. So this is going to be one of their challenges going into the next election campaign. But I think the uh, the notion that you would have one party, uh, you know, kind of on the other side of the climate debate going into the next election campaign, probably not going to happen. Uh, you said earlier on uh, in, in this interview, Gerald, that uh, a lot of this depends on uh, reopening and, and, and Ontario, Ontario and Canadians getting back to where they were or whatever the new sense of, of normalcy is. Uh, we're rolling out. Uh, we've seen a bit of a change in the strategy here with the vaccination. As you mentioned uh, in, in, in your polling earlier, 71% of Canadians were angry about uh, where we were. Uh, all of a sudden, boom, we're starting to hear uh, more announcements. It, it may have been that the PM is gonna, it was under-promising and now will over-deliver. Uh, that being said, we're seeing information coming out today from the Center for Disease Control in the United States, and they're to the point where they've, they've vaccinated enough people, they're talking about coming out, what happens when everybody is vaccinated, and they're they're releasing guidelines uh, on that, saying that if you've had your vaccination and your friends or friend has had their vaccination, then the two of you can get together and not have to be masked. But again, in situations where not everyone is still vaccinated, um, you know, the, the, the closures, the protocols, uh, masking all still in place. The CDC also saying that you're not considered vaccinated until you got both shots. Uh, we're seeing here, uh, obviously a shortage. Now we're taking uh, the doses and stretching them out to a longer period of time. Can you see that coming back to bite this government in some way when even after May, say we've all had one dose, we still can't, you know, reduce any of the protocol because we haven't had the second. Well, yeah, and that, that is the vulnerability here. So we saw, um, back in December when it was first announced, that Canada had approved some vaccines and was getting some vaccines, that we saw a little bit of euphoria around that. Yeah. And so what happened is things improved. And then we, you know, were faced with the reality of the trickle of vaccines that were actually coming into the country. And that, you know, uh, every number that the government was saying you had to cut in two because you needed two shots in order to be vaccinated. So we've got a little bit of the same thing going on right now where they've come out with the euphoria, we're maybe a little ahead of where we thought we were going to be. We're going to be able to move a little faster. And now the questions are going to start being raised. Well, like 16 weeks, really? 12 weeks, really? Is that is anybody else doing that? What does that mean? And, um, you know, w- what is the next stage of this going to be? So there's going to be a lot of filling in the blanks on that over the space of the next couple of weeks. And this will either go up or down based on whether or not people are hearing what they need to hear. So are we really ahead or are we just delaying the end game? When it comes to uh, vaccines? Yeah. 
Well, that, that's the, the question that remains to be answered. At the moment, Canadians are hearing good news and they're expecting good things are going to happen. And when you raise people's expectations, the next thing you have to be able to do is deliver. And that's the challenge. So where does this uh, leave you with a prediction on an election? Obviously, the Prime Minister wanting uh, a, a majority, and, and there was lots of chatter about the spring uh, when all of this, uh, when all of these shipments really start to move in and such. Do you see that as a possibility? Yeah, quite clearly. I mean, that's that's what they're they're maneuvering for. But the problem that they've got, of course, is they've got to come up with a good reason to have an election, and that we haven't heard yet. So just simply wanting to have an election when you're in a minority government situation, unless you're defeated by the other side, you have to have a really good reason to go to the people. Uh, we have a Canada Elections Act that says that you're supposed to go every four years. We're clearly not four years into their mandate. So they're going to have to come up with a really good reason for it. And what, whatever that reason is, they've got between now and the time they want to call it to, uh, to, to demonstrate it. Either that or the other parties have to defeat them. And at the moment, both the Conservatives and the NDP have said that they're unlikely to do that. Uh, how does, you, you spoke of this earlier, how does Quebec factor into this with the Bloc? Enormously. So in our polling right now, the, uh, the, uh, the Bloc Québécois is leading the Liberal Party by a little bit. And different polls are showing the Liberals ahead, you know. So it's, it's kind of ambiguous at the moment, and ambiguous isn't good enough for the Liberal Party. And the reason for that is the majority has to come out of Quebec. And the reason uh, that you would look at Quebec for the majority is because basically every seat that's accessible to them in the province of Ontario, they already have. So they swept the 905, they swept the 416. They're not likely to be winning in rural and small town Ontario anytime soon. So they've got what they're going to get in the province of Ontario. Alberta is not possible for them. Maybe they'll pick up a couple of seats in Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Maybe they'll do a little bit better in, uh, in, in British Columbia. But they really need to do a lot better in the province of Quebec. And if they don't, a majority is tough. Can they do better in Quebec than the Bloc? The Bloc seems to have uh, a bit of momentum right now. What, what do they have to do to defeat the Bloc in Quebec? Well, uh, well that's, uh, that's really the, the, the big question here. Uh, last time around, um, the, uh, the Bloc Québécois prior to the last election was pretty much um, pretty much out of the game. Uh, they found a way to get themselves back into the game as a result of, uh, I would say, mainly transitions that took transitions that took place at the provincial level with the emergence of the of the uh, coalition of an uh, option. Uh, so um, the, the Bloc Québécois um, really is a presence in, in, in Quebec politics again, but for another reason that's, that's different from what it what it really represented before. It's it, well, well, it still has separatism as its you know its its its, uh, its its defining element. They're also seen as representing Quebec's interests within the national within the national government and, and doing it in terms of how Quebecers feel doing it well. So the the problem that the Liberal Party has is the reason that people are voting for the the the, uh, uh, the Bloc Québécois in the province of Quebec is they want them their interests to be represented in that way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they would have they would have voted for the Liberal Party. So they made their they made their case in two elections and have not been able to knock the block back. How does gender on this International Women's Day play into these numbers? Uh, is it an even split? What effect does that have? Well, in this particular poll, the Liberals are doing best among both women and men. But typically what we see is a two-way gender split. So we tend to see the Conservatives do better among men, and they have a problem attracting women. But we usually see the Liberal Party doing worse among men, and they have a problem 
uh, uh, winning among men. And uh, so typically, if you had an election among just women in this country, the Liberal Party would have its majority. But if you had an election among men, the Conservative Party would, would very much challenge for governing. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, do you see that changing anytime soon? I, wouldn't these parties identify this weakness, strength? Uh, we, we spend an awful lot of time talking about the problems that the Conservative Party has with, uh, with women. We spend a lot less time talking about the problems that the Liberal Party has with men. Uh, and both of them uh, ha- have, as I said before, a specific uh, gender group that they need to do a better job of responding to. I think uh, the Conservatives, um, um, w- you know, will see, based on the policy agenda they're talking about right now, they're probably going to have trouble. Uh, but also the Liberal Party has not shown an ability to really build across a genders a, a stronger coalition, uh, as I think most people assume that they have, because they don't. It's interesting that uh, the Liberals seem to be better at the messaging than the Conservatives do. They don't seem Conservatives don't be able to to somehow construct or or convey an accurate message to what they are. Yeah, and and it's even harder in these times, Scott. That's that's the problem that Aaron O'Toole really faces. Uh, you know, all the mechanisms that you would normally have to define yourself are denied you. So you can't do it in the House of Commons because the House yeah. of Commons really doesn't exist. You can't do tours. You can't travel around. You can do virtual tours. That's about it. Um, you can't do, uh, uh, you know, normal media out- outings where you go out and, you know, stage events and do that kind of – none of that's uh, possible. So he's uh, really handicapped by this current situation, as is Jagmeet Singh. But at least Jagmeet Singh's been through an election campaign, and his awareness is, is higher than Aaron O'Toole's is. When do you see an election? Uh, I think that they're trying to engineer one for the spring, um, but yeah. uh, the announcement today was that they're pushing back the budget till into April. Um, so, uh, you know, until they have a budget and try to get defeated on a budget, uh, you know, an election, you know, within a, a couple of months after that um, is probably what the agenda is. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, of loose aspects to this right now that need to tighten up before there's any sort of certainty. And, and quite frankly, I think the biggest one confronting the Liberal Party at the moment is their lack of certainty in the province of Quebec. Interesting. Boy, it's still uh, it's not over yet. Things can fluctuate pretty quickly during a uh, global pandemic. Daryl Berker with the CEO of Ipsos, Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. International Women's Day today. Lots to talk about with uh, Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR, pop culture expert and PR expert. Uh, Let's bring her in now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, I am. And happy International Women's Day to you, to the people that you work with, Scott, and to everyone who's listening. Back at you, Alyssa. You are a professional woman. Uh, we're roughly, I think, the same age or so. What has been your biggest challenge as a woman in business? I think it's, uh, there's a couple things. I think there's pay equity, number one. I think it's the uh, ability to have equal opportunity, number two. And also the ability to sort of crack the ceilings of upper echelons or and or have a long career without um, ageism getting in the way. You know, it's interesting, Scott. I remember when I was a I was a young woman, just a young lass, and they said to you, you know, you can do anything. You can do anything you want. This is, you know, we've worked hard for this, uh, women who came before you, and it should be much smoother sailing for you than it was for us. 
And I'd have to say that's not necessarily the case. It's interesting because my wife and I were having this discussion earlier this morning, uh, you know, after watching the royal thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute minute here, Um, and, you know, racism in regard to that and and women issues, woman issues in regard to International Women's Day. And her, her first reaction was, why are we still talking about this? Why has why are we still talking about this? And, and we're still in the same place. I guess we're not in the same place. But boy, oh, boy, uh, in the grand scheme of thing, have we made, um, you know, the leaps and bounds that were promised you back when? No, I don't think we have been. And, you know, it's interesting from a PR perspective. I really hate days. You know, days come and go. Why yeah. is International Women's Day every day? So one day a week, you know, one day out of the year, I should say, you know, you go into LinkedIn and everybody's celebrating women, the women they love, the women they work with, whatever, whatever. But, you know, do they really celebrate them and appreciate them and treat them equally the other 364 days of the year? And I'd have to say not necessarily. I think that there's still a lot of long-held narrative tropes that, you know, women maybe don't deserve to have um, – all that is coming to them in terms of their careers. For example, every time that a woman becomes a, a new CEO, the company sends out a press release and a press release and touts first woman CEO of company XYZ. And I, th- I thought, if there's really truly equality here, and if it really wasn't an issue, then we wouldn't have headlines saying first female fill yeah. in the blank. <laughs> yeah. So that's where these these type of things is. You know, are we willing to? Everybody talks about doing the work or, you know, embracing the challenge and embracing the change. Um, You know, I think are we willing to do that, uh, you know, 365 days a year? Maybe some people are, maybe some people aren't. But it's by no means a fait accompli. Do you go into situ- uh, do you go into situations, professional situations, uh, and people treat you less because you are a woman? I have. You know, I have been in professional situations like that. You know, when you have um, men who have grown up in a very sort of uh, male-dominated, uh, career-focused uh, work uh, environment, and they carry those narratives along with them. So, you know, maybe they have women as window dressing, and then maybe again they have women because they're really the smartest person for the position. But just even sometimes the way that men comport themselves in meetings and you know, I'm the leader and you sit there and here's a pen. Can you take some notes? You know, that but definitely that absolutely still happens. I also think that more than, you know, International Women's Day, how about let's give women a raise day? Let's tell you, let's, you know, let's hope that after the, the pandemic where women have been disproportionately affected in so many ways, Scott, so many ways that here's how we're going to make sure that women can get back up on their feet, can get back into the workforce, and can be paid an equal wage. You know, I'm thinking back here. I've been doing this for 36 years. I've had a ton of women bosses over the year years. And I mean, not just one or two, like a lot. I'm trying to figure out, would, would it be half? Would it be 60%, 40%? But, but it's close to half. Um, and, and I don't ever remember, and, you know, I'm thinking back and, I think all of them were great, except one I can think of. But I, I don't think that had anything to do with gender. Uh, I just think it had to do with qualifications. I don't ever remember going in and go, oh, man, a woman boss. Like, do, do those conversations still happen, do you think? I hope not. Uh, you know, I went into my own consultancy because I realized that as I was getting up in age, 
that, you know, the age of me also as a woman might not be seen as desirable for, you know, working as a full-time employee in an organization. Now, you know, to be fair, uh, the not-for-profit um, industry and also the healthcare industry have actually disproportionately a lot of women uh, working in those industries, and a lot of them are in management or senior management positions. Not a lot of them are running the hospitals, but they're certainly on, on the executive teams. And, you know, some of them are in the more traditional roles that you see as, as uh, human resources or communications. And every now and then you see um, somebody in strategy or, or, or maybe in finance. So I, I feel that, you know, while women are making headway, I just hope that it's less about um, window dressing and really because that they deserve to have a seat at the table and that if you're really going to hire gender blind, then really just hire gender blind. You said age as much as a factor as gender for women. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. I can have this great consulting career and I do, and I'm about to hit like a really big birthday this Saturday, uh, Scott. Oh, so, good for you. Yeah. Like really big. <laughs> so, you know, if I, if somebody was, if I was to apply, let's say, even if it was for a senior position in a, um, you know, in an organization, I think that they would look twice about that. I think that as soon as you're over 50, man or woman, I, I think that you're going to have a problem getting hired, even though you've got plenty of smarts, you know, plenty of strategic um thoughts and uh, certainly a, a huge degree of experience to offer. So age still absolutely, absolutely ageism is, is, is really quite a big deal, which is when people say to me, gee, would you ever go back in, into an office and work every day? And I'm like, well, nobody's doing that anymore anyways. But the answer to that is, yeah, maybe, but I think that the people hiring me would probably think twice. Uh, 73% of Canadian women and 58% of American American women think gender equality has not been achieved in their country. How do you explain the difference between each country? I find that um, I find that stat really interesting. I would think that there is more uh, wage disparity in the states um, as there is in Canada, although I don't know the exact difference. But I would I find that. I find that stat really, really interesting, and I'd probably have to dig into it a little bit more to understand, even though all the questions were asked uh, equally. And I'm sure that Leger did a cross-section of women, um, probably 18 plus. So who knows? I mean, maybe some of this is, is skewed younger and, and not all of it is skewed older. It doesn't really say what, I can't see here what age range it is. I really, um, I find that, I, actually, I find that whole stat really, really shocking because I don't think that there's really a big difference in gender disparity between the two countries. Um, either way you split this, it's still an issue with the majority of people. It's interesting that it's still a major issue with people, yet we don't seem to be seeing the progress that some would like. Well, just as your wife said to you this morning, Scott, why are we still talking about this? Yeah. Um, shouldn't we have solved this by now? And, you know, I've been in the workforce for about 30 years, so... You know, do the math. I've been waiting that long for things to change. So, you know, when I see my daughter who's in third year university and I see the way that um, they're being taught to enter the workforce where 
They don't just have to say how high when somebody says jump. And if that's not their style of working, then that's just not their style of working. And I think that this generation is actually going to put up with a lot less. And I think that women of my generation were a little bit more fearful and didn't think that we had the power to exert when we saw an injustice as to why we weren't getting promoted or, you know, why we weren't getting raises. And listen, all, some of this is performance-based, too. I'm not saying that all women should yeah. automatically get promoted and get and get raises. But, what, but I think that there is a, um, a basis of that we should all be making a good living wage period. And if we want to create uh, a better world to live in where we can all contribute, then women have to be included in that equation. Uh, Will COVID-19 or a global pandemic move this discussion along quicker? Well, I sure hope so. You know, Scott, I um, I had the opportunity to host a panel uh, that basically talked about the shadow pandemic and how it's disproportionately affecting women. And one of them was um, women in the workplace, which has taken a huge hit because many women are in the service industry. Um, there has been a spike in domestic violence. And we also explored the topic of an increase in human trafficking, which has gone from you know on the streets to online. So there is a lot of work to do. And because a lot of these organizations have been working in the shadow of COVID-19, that's sort of been sucking up a lot of, obviously, media time, but money and resources and attention, that we will need to turn our focus to these other issues that affect women um, and men, but also especially women, in order to push them up to the, the top of the agenda and start doing less talking and more doing. Um, Burger King shoots out a tweet that says women belong in the kitchen, uh, which has obviously created a lot of backlash until you read on and follow the next tweet, which is a scholarship trying to get more women in the culinary industry. Your thoughts on this? Well, I think that that's just an old narrative trope trick that's used by agencies that, you know, when you were in high school and they used to put up posters for the dance and they used to say at the top of it, sex, and they used to say, now that I have your attention. Well, that's certainly <laughs> And, you know, I read a lot of the, um, the the tweets that came out after it. One marketing exec said this is exactly spot on. Normally, something like this would just be buried as a, a nice to do and would live on the corporate web page and nobody would really know about it. So here you do something like this. Women belong in the kitchen. And it's about a scholarship program to get into, you know, quick service restaurants. I I would have rather seen. I think it wasn't it to get into culinary school, though. Yeah, because there's only like 20 percent of the people in culinary school are women, apparently. Okay, so I, I think either way, I think what Burger King is doing great. I just wish they hadn't leaned on some old trope in order to get people's mm. attention. I think there's a lot of clever people in the ad industry that could have done something um, as provocative, as creative, and created the same amount of attention. But not as dated. Not as dated. Yeah, good point, good point. All right, uh, I'm sure you saw the royal thing last night. Um, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to see whatever side you're on, you're just dug in deeper now. It's almost like watching U.S. politics. Uh, this thing's going to air tonight in uh, in the U.K., but obviously with the Internet, people have got bits and pieces of it uh, already. Your thoughts on what uh, the interview, the Oprah interview with uh, Harry and Meghan does to the brand? 
Well, they basically took a double-decker bus through the brand and behind it and then rolled over <laughs> it a few times. That's exactly what happened. Like, firstly, Scott, uh, okay, listen, even if you didn't watch this whole interview, you're going to get three narratives out of it. Um, mental illness, racism, and inequality. Yeah. So based on that, it's, you know, 10 out of 10. It worked. So before the interview, Oprah says you didn't get paid, which I have to say, ha. Huh? Um, you did not receive the questions before. Again, ha. Huh? However, it doesn't really matter. I was just finishing. I was watching the social before I went on with you. And you know, obviously, you know, they drank all the Kool-Aid, hook, line and sinker. And, you know, for many reasons, there are there was a lot of bombshells dropped in that interview. And then Oprah's a master interviewer. Let's not forget. Yeah, she knew exactly what she was doing. Plus, it was her production company that put on that interview. So when the interview was originally supposed to be 90 minutes and then it went to two hours, it wasn't because there was any more juice or tea, as they say, that was being spilled. It was because the advertising was phenomenal. They made a financial killing off of that interview. So good for Oprah for forging that path for herself. I am wondering, you know, why this had to be all aired in the first place. I think that the monarchy is, if you ever watch The Crown, and listen, I've been watching The Monarchy for years and years now. Um, If you've ever watched The Crown, you know that there's problems inherent inherent in in the monarchy. They're almost a parallel universe. And they do need um, some of their attitudes about more modern narratives absolutely modernized. So I think it was a real slap in the face when they have been talking about mental health and mental illness uh, all, all this time that they that this to the monarchy. And, 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 and also, if it's true that they didn't offer Megan any um, recourse when she said she was having suicidal thoughts, if that's true. Scott, that is reprehensible. No matter who yeah. you are, it's, it's reprehensible. Um, I felt that Megan's responses to these questions were really well-crafted. And if you're five months pregnant and you're nervous about doing an interview with Oprah and you know that you're going to spill all the tea, there was not a moment's hesitation in any of her answers. I mean, they were delivered with uh, clarity, evenness, and in many cases, non-emotion. So when they talk about his mother, um, Diana, that history, you know, he was afraid that history was going to repeat itself. I think that history repeated itself when you look at Diana's interview with Martin Bashir, and then look at this interview that we all witnessed yesterday with Oprah. It's uh, it's it seems as if the firm is bigger than the personalities. I'm not. I'm surprised that the Queen doesn't hold more uh, of the staff responsible for some of this situation because i mean we we you know i mean it's not the first time stuff like this has come out uh you would think that the queen would somehow have tried to make this work and i agree and and i think that the queen is is how old is the queen 99 yeah 95 (laughs) 95, yeah. and, is, yeah. and Philip is 99. Yeah. You know, she has lived a long time, and I think that she's probably delegated some of the responsibilities. And those responsibilities have largely fell onto Charles. So if this is the woman that your son has chosen, and listen, Charles, you know, you haven't had actually the greatest, you know, uh, past with, uh, with women either. Um, so why not just to embrace the woman that he is with? 
you could call off the tabloids if you want. And I'm, I'm sure that that's just a, an ongoing relationship with the palace. And why cut them off? Why not create an agreement where, okay, go live in Canada, but listen, can you come back uh, two, three times a year and do a few ribbon cuttings? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think the big concern here is that Harry and Meghan are more popular than Will and Kate. And the whole idea when Will and Kate came into the picture was, oh, it's taking the monarchy to a new, modern, vibrant age. Well, this would have taken it two steps above that. They need these two to help sell a modern brand. And by kicking them to the door and not taking advantage of this, I think it's setting the monarchy back. I, I think that if that if they were worried about Will and Kate, I mean, I really find that a, a displaced narrative because you know once Will becomes king and she becomes queen, well then it's you know it, it you know popularity goes in hills and valleys, Scott. You cannot maintain popularity twenty four seven. You just can't. And sometimes it's okay if somebody else takes the ball and run with it. So if you decide to work as a team versus I'm going to do this and you're going to stand behind me then, you know, where does that get you? And and the thing about the monarchy is, you have to remember, you know, tax, it's taxpayers' money. I mean, the queen is one of the richest women in the world. So, and they have a number of people, quote-unquote, on the list, although I think the list has been, you know, downsized somewhat, as to who gets the royal stipend and who doesn't. And so while they're saying that, you know, Archie wasn't going to be a prince, I think that as soon as Charles would become king, then... Harry is a prince, and therefore his his son is a prince. Yeah. So hmm. I I just think that a lot of this needs didn't need to happen. And if we and as we have discussed before, a lot of crises, some of it is external and it happens to you, but for the most part, you do it to yourself. Good point, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. Uh, Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And thanks for having me, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.